everybody um, to uh, this edition of the uh, British Society of Sports History and Institute of Historical Research, Sport and Leisure History seminar. That was a little bit of a mouthful. Um, I am Raf Nicholson. Um, I am one of the seminar co-conveners um, and we're really pleased that you could all be here for this evening's paper. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping before we get underway. Um, so Dave's going to be speaking to us in a little bit. Um, and um, I'm told that his paper is going to last for 45 minutes or so. Um, and then we will have a little bit of time at the end for questions. Um, so if you could just remain on mute um, for the duration of the paper while Dave's speaking, that would be great, just so that we don't get any background noise. Um, and then um, if you want to type any questions into the chat as we go through that occur to you, then feel free to do that. Um, otherwise, um, we're happy for you just to raise your hand at the end of the paper um, and we can we can come to you in that way so that you can put your question to Dave directly. This evening's paper will be given by Professor Dave Day. Um, Dave is Professor of Sports History at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, his research interests include the historical development of coaching and training practices, as well as the life courses of 19th and 20th century sports coaches. Um, Dave's a, a pioneer, I would say, in the use of biography and genealogy in, in sports history. Um, and this evening, he's going to be speaking to us um, around the title of For Those Who Like the Life, Nothing Could Be Better, The Games Mistress in Interwar Britain. Over to you, Dave. Okay, so thank you, Raf, and uh, and welcome everybody. Um, as Raf has just said, the focus of my research over the last twenty five years has been the history of coaching and of coaches, and I'm now building on the extensive body of work I have published on female swimming teachers to consider the many women who were adopting similar coaching roles across a whole spectrum of sports in the 19th and the first half of the 20th century. Now, in collaboration with highly talented scholars from across Europe, we are gradually generating some momentum in this area. And a special issue of the Sporting History Journal later this year specifically addresses the history of women's coaching. I should say at this stage that issue includes an excellent article by today's chair that I recommend to everybody in the room. A forthcoming special issue of Sports Coaching Review includes some informative histories of women coaches. And I'm also delighted to say that I've been commissioned to write a book on the history of women's coaching in Britain for publication next year which I hope will stimulate future research. Now, critical to our consideration of the history of women in coaching is the part played by the female physical educator, the games mistress in the first half of the 20th century. And she is the focus of this presentation, which combines evidence from newspapers, the 1911 and 1921 censuses, college records and school archives to illuminate some of the life courses and experiences of the women involved in the development of sport and physical activity for girls 
inside and outside the school environment and at a local and a regional level. Now, the national leaders in this field have been relatively well covered in the historiography, but I want to consider here some of the more humdrum foot soldiers who've rarely been recognised for the impact that they made. I must start by acknowledging two colleagues who have made a major contribution to this presentation. Jane Clayden, who I know is in the room. Hi, Jane. Who spent most of her career working at St Leonard's School in St Andrews and who has provided so much interesting detail about relevant personalities, as well as ideas and illustrations. And Margaret Roberts for allowing me to use some of her teacher training research and for breaking down some of the genealogical brick walls that affected my biographical research. Uh, chapeau to you both. So during the next 45 minutes, so we'll be using the census of 1911 and 1921 to identify and analyze the characteristics of those who describe themselves to the enumerator using the term games mistress. It's pertinent at this point to recognize that how the terminology that we use to describe ourselves says something about what we value about our lives and how we interpret what we do. Some prominent 19th century swimming professors, for example, always describe themselves by their other occupations in census returns. For them, being a skilled fret cutter or earning a living as a furniture dealer was the most important marker of who they are and who they were. We still see this everywhere today, and mastermind contestants, I think, are a great example. While some are content to be retired, others refer back to their working identities as retired academic or retired librarian. So when we explore the lives of women who designated themselves as the games mistress, we need to understand that while the post they have been appointed to often dictated the terminology they used, there was always fluidity in the self-descriptors that were employed. And not all women operating in the role of games mistress described themselves as such. Take, for example, the case of Dorothy Last. Now, Dorothy hedged her bets in the, in the 1921 census by including both instructress and teacher in her submission, in the line across the top. Her teaching record details her qualifications along with her teaching career, and in another time and in another place, it's quite possible that she would have described herself as a games mistress. Dorothy went on to marry physician John Thomas in 1925 at the age of 36 and then have a daughter in 1929 at the age of 40. Something of a positive advert for a life of physical activity. So what I'm saying here is we need to appreciate that when we explore games mistresses lives using that term, then we are only scratching the surface with respect to the number of women operating in this field 
in the first half of the 20th century. Although these explorations are helping us to understand what this particular cohort looked like at grassroots level and the way that, that their lives unfolded. So, in the years leading up to the war in 1914, British middle-class women were growing up in a world where the imbalance between the numbers of men and women meant that many of them could never expect to marry. So many more young women needed to be trained to be self-supported. Increasingly, the label new woman was used to describe the significant numbers of women who took up employment in office work, managerial and supervisory positions, state school teaching and nursing. Developments that always caused consternation among male observers and questions about their commitment to their socially approved roles as wives and mothers. Health and fitness regimes and participation in sports and games became an important element in the creation of the new woman, with Dr Elizabeth Pace arguing that physical education for unmarried women following the various professions was important because good health was required to bear the strains of professional life. However, echoes of the 19th century medical discourse over women's physicality persisted, and there were always fears that playing sports, especially outdoors, could damage a woman's looks or make her appear masculine. The hockey girl is a really serious problem in modern social life by reason of her effect upon women of the future. Until a year or two ago, the English girl was a thing of beauty and a joy for the term of her natural life, growing in grace and sweetness as the years passed lightly over her head. But what is she now? Just a hockey girl, nothing more or less. Awkward in her gait, clumsy in her manner, it would be a libel on manhood to call her masculine, for she is simply a parody from the sex that she tries to hate. Nevertheless, the sporting girl was increasingly framed as modern and aspirational. Although female engagement in sport was essentially a middle-class activity, since these were the women who had free time and disposable income. While they were generally excluded from society's definition of feminine and concerns about the effects on ladies of physical overstrain, the rise of female physical culture was at least partially driven by anxieties about the conditions of overworked, underfed and chronically ill working class women. Among the middle classes, concerns about girls' inactivity was addressed by the introduction of exercise programmes at many girls' schools after the British Endowed Schools Act of 1869 had created educational establishments that emulated the organisation of the boys' public schools. However, whereas boys focused on playing sports, 
girls' schooling included gymnastics and calisthenics. Through the incorporation of the Swedish system of gymnastics favoured by the physical education colleges, that were graduating substantial numbers of trained women teachers. The need for physical education specialists in girls' schools became even more important with the subsequent expansion in the playing of team sports. Although Elizabeth Pace argued that the ideal arrangement was to have a gymnastic mistress who was also a games mistress. In 1906, it was observed that among the posts for which the services of superior and energetic women are in demand are those of games mistresses, candidates for which should be young, highly educated, and must combine a good manner with sound judgment. The demand was being met by five physical education training colleges for women, Dartford, Anstey, Chelsea, Iron Marsh and Bedford. Attendees at a lecture given by Rhoda Anstey, head of the Hygiene, Hygienic Home and College of Physical Culture based in House Owen, highlighted the way her two-year course which included theoretical and practical training in hygiene, Swedish gymnastics and vegetarian cookery, as well as gardening, dancing, elocution and games, qualified teachers of gymnastics and hygiene, a profession in which remunerative openings are at present more numerous than those able to occupy them. After a student display at the Chelsea Physical Training College for Women in 1904, another observer remarked that while there were many ways in which a woman could earn a living, none of them offered so good a chance of romping happily through life as that of the gymnastic teacher, especially if she were also a games mistress. Dartford, which had originated as Madame Osterberg's Hampstead Physical Training College, included gymnastics, fencing, swimming, lawn tennis and cricket, alongside anatomical, physiological and hygienic subjects in its curriculum. Training took two years, but successful candidates were guaranteed appointments. The Gentlewoman Weekly Illustrated Paper advised women wanting to enter the teaching profession and teach cricket, tennis, hockey, swimming, cycling and gymnastics to attend Dartford, while women who wanted to specialise in medical gymnastics were pointed towards the Institution for Medical Gymnastics in South Kensington. Students there were aged between 21 to 40. They took one year's training in anatomy, physiology, hygiene, ambulance work, medical gymnastics, theory of movement and massage, before taking a raft of exams, including that of the Incorporated Society of Masseurs. In combination, these different training opportunities opened up the whole field of physical culture. The 1911 census illustrates nicely the variety in language that women used when describing their occupation to the enumerator. 
Of the 219 physical culturalists identified here, 87 referred to themselves as a teacher, 102 as an instructress, six as a mistress, and four as a professor. While the 21 to 30-year-old age group dominated, there were 59 women in the over 31 years old category, the vast majority of whom remained unmarried, who were presumably generating a career in the field. And there's no doubt that for some entrepreneurial women, the qualification obtained from the physical training college could be used as a vehicle to develop an independent career, not tied to any educational institution. Many of these women worked in environments other than the private schools, such as gymnasia or state elementary schools, and were therefore much less likely to refer to themselves as games mistresses. There were 41 women who used self-descriptors that suggested the connection to the role of games mistress in some way, with 12 describing themselves as such and another 12 combining this with gymnastics. A variety of other terms were employed and there is undoubtedly some crossover between the careers of these women and those who were using similar descriptors in the physical culture table. Of the 41 women recorded here, 32 were in the 21 to 30 year old age bracket and all but one was single, and actually the exception was Madame Osterberg. Three of the gymnastics teachers here were on the staff at Dartford, as was the only games coach that appeared on the census. And as with other PE colleges, Dartford continued to exert an influence into the interwar period. Harold Perkin described interwar society as being in a transitional stage, a sort of halfway house in which remnants of Victorianism coexisted with harbingers of the future. A vision that resonated in all the aspects of social, cultural, political and economic life that affected women. The Education Act of 1918 raised the school leaving age to 14 and the Sex Disqualification Act of 1919 made it easier for, for women to go to university and take up professional jobs as teachers, nurses and doctors, although it did not end workplace discrimination. Middle class women began to get jobs in increasing numbers in the civil service, although these were mostly at clerical and administrative grades. The civil service, the education sector and the new professions operated a marriage bar, which meant that women had to resign their posts when they got married. A process supported by many male-led trade unions who were always concerned that women would be employed as cheap labour. The average age of first marriage among women never fell below 25 throughout the period, 
and young single women constituted over 45% of the female workforce throughout the 1920s. In January 1923, it was noted that there were 250,000 women and girls seeking work, and nearly 180,000 were registered at the labour exchanges. But unemployment was especially rife among those not covered by the Unemployment Insurance Act of 1920, which provided for lower rates of unemployment benefit for women who, unlike men, were refused benefit if they rejected work in domestic service. The reporter observed that many people have little patience with girls being out of work when there is room for them all in domestic service, which accounted for 24.3% of the young female workforce even in 1931. So it's no surprise then that the sporting girl searched out other career options. The move to dismiss women workers from munitions began after the collapse of the Eastern Front at the end of 1917. And the 1919 Restoration of Pre-War Practices Act forced many women to give up their wartime employment, limiting their access to the sports they'd become used to. Having gone to work in a factory at the start of the war, one munitionette observed that she had tried playing football, but found the game too rough. So she had taken up hockey and fell in love with it. Having improved her fitness, she played tennis again in the summer and ended up acting as an unofficial coach to some of the other girls. She was missing her sport now that she'd been demobilized and wanted a means by which she could maintain her fitness. The Times reinforced the point in 1922, remarking that during the days of war services, many women achieved a degree of good health that had not been experienced before. This happy change was also evidently related to the increased amount of exercise that they were getting, so that the idea of training to be fit became established in the feminine mind. In consequence, physical culture is becoming as widely prevalent among women as among men. A reduction in working hours allied to a growth in disposable income for those in work enabled new constituencies of women to participate. And large numbers of women from a variety of social backgrounds joined athletic, physical culture and fitness organisations. Keep fit exercises, swimming, camping, hiking and cycling flourished. And these relatively affordable activities were particular, particularly popular among younger working class women. Particular activities remain beyond their reach, however given that most participation occurred in private subscription-based clubs and that municipal provision in the UK was limited until 1937, restricting working-class women's access to golf courses, hockey pitches and tennis courts. Now, while activities such as shooting and hunting um, continued for the rich, it was activities that could be played in the new suburbs 
within easy reach of home that increased most significantly. Women's participation in sports such as golf and tennis was considered appropriate for ladies because none of them involved physical contact. And these sports were not only convenient, but they also provided an arena for the display of affluence and social standing. While hockey provided an opportunity, a rare opportunity to experience playing a team sport, as well as socialising with one's peers. The expansion in both tennis and hockey reflected their importance to the games tradition that it was a central feature of the curriculum of girls' schools in the interwar period. Were often encouraged by a particularly enthusiastic PE teacher who had access to good sports facilities and could nurture their talent. When Patricia Huseman, an elite British squash and tennis player of the 1940s and 50s, attended a private boarding school in Torquay in Devon, she was introduced to a range of sports, including cricket, hockey, netball and tennis. And her games mistress, recognising her talent, played tennis with her every lunch break. In 1920, the Aberdeen Press reported that there were around 700 of these young women, well-trained and scientifically equipped, earning a good livelihood in England and Scotland as instructors in, ga in games and gymnastics. Demand was growing throughout the empire, and there is plenty of evidence that several adventurous young graduates from the physical training colleges travelled abroad to work. While opportunities were opening up as organisers and inspectors, working with government and local authorities. Throughout the 1920s, we can see constant references to the games mistress in one form or another, even in adverts. The advert here for corsets is, is supposedly saying that the games mistresses supported this particular corset, although I suspect that probably wasn't the case. By 1922, it was being argued that being a games mistress was a well-paid, attractive career suitable for girls who had excelled in school games and gymnastics and wanted an active out-of-door life. In 1924, a Miss Spear was advertising for a games mistress to coach girls in netball on Thursday afternoons. A 1928 rep uh, report on the Sheffield High School hockey team observed that they were making great strides under the coaching of Miss Bryant, their games mistress, who had played in the English team which had visited Australia. They had a full list of fixtures, including games, with schools in Sheffield, Rotherham, Leeds and Huddersfield. Pictures of games mistresses occurred with their teams in the newspapers. My favourite is the best dressed games mistress you are likely to come across. In the 1921 census, looking at the games mistress, people who called themselves games mistress, of the 89 women who used the term games mistress in their self-description, 
Five referred to themselves as a drill and games mistress, 42 as a games mistress, and 42 as a gymnastic and games mistress. In terms of class origins, where the occupation of fathers can be identified, we see clergymen, army officers, engineers, architects, merchants, and so on suggesting that the role of games mistress was seen as an acceptable career path for their daughters by many middle-class patriarchs. These women were operating around the country, and while nearly half were working in London and the southern counties, 13 were based in Yorkshire. The majority were employed in private schools or in schools run by local education authorities, but interestingly, Ellen Casey and, and Gwendolyn Stevens were employed as games mistresses by the Stoke Park Colony, a home for, quote, mentally defective children in Bristol. Philglia Kennedy was working as gymnastic and games mistress for Clark's Shoe Factory in Somerset. Elsie Johnson was games mistress for Bank W&T's Avery's weighing machine company in Birmingham and Hilda Hughes was gymnastic and games mistress for Ricketts Limited, a long established cleaning products company in Yorkshire. Opportunities in paternalistic companies like these had existed since firms like Cadbury's had employed games and swimming mistresses in the late 19th century. With increasing employment opportunities and income, many young women took the decision to leave home to live in rented accommodation and boarding houses. A large number of this sample, 28 in fact, were recorded as boarders in the census, while 13 were living in at the schools and 12 were noted as visitors. Of those recorded as living at home, 13 of the households were headed by a father and 10 by a widowed mother. Nine women were heading up their own households and two were inmates in institutions. Not surprisingly, the ages were skewed heavily towards those in their 20s. But it's also clear from the numbers of women continuing to work in this field into their 30s, that several individuals were seeing this role as a long-term career, much as they had in the 1911 census as well. In February 1920, HMK Neild observed that the work of the games mistress had been given new impetus by an education act that required proper physical training to be given in all schools. The games mistress needed to be an intellectual woman with plenty of common sense as well as physical strength. The sort of woman who could win girls and exert a good all-round influence. She had to have moral fitness in order to develop character. Formal training was important but rather costly. The training fees in 1922 costing 14 guineas a term while the fees for residency were 33 guineas a term. Training courses covered dancing, swimming, fencing, gymnastics and remedial gymnastics, 
massage, first aid, physiology, pathology, hygiene, psychology, which I think is quite interesting. It's a period when psychology was becoming uh, more prominent. School conditions and child health, voice production, and games such as netball, cricket, lawn tennis, lacrosse, etc. Quite often, uh, she was expected to teach folk dancing and ballroom dancing, as well as possibly conducting girl guides company. The trained games mistress of the right temperament was very much in demand at private and public schools, and salaries were not on an upward trend. The salary for a fully qualified games mistress was fixed by the Burnham Committee in 1922, with graduate salaries for assistant non-resident specialist teachers in London starting at £375 a year and increasing annually by £15 a year up to £440. In 1929, one reporter noted that a famous schoolmistress in England placed greater importance on the character of her games mistress than upon the character of any other single member of staff. Because while the other mistresses only handled girls in the classroom and at times were neighbor under a sort of automatic discipline, the games mistress had the opportunity, had the children in their spontaneous and unguarded moments. And hers was the exceptional opportunity of helping them to play in a manner to show not merely proficiency in games, but character as well. Now, as Jane Clayton has noted, two women who were pivotal to the games tradition at St. Leonard's in the 1920s epitomised many of these working practices and ideals. Nora Strathairn attended St. Leonard's from 1905 to 1910 and went to train at Dartford, where after gaining first-class honours in hockey, lacrosse and cricket, and first-class in gymnastics and teaching, Madame Osterberg invited her to join her staff at the end of her two-year course, her position being variously described as assistant games coach and games tutor. Nora played in the first lacrosse international for Scotland in 1913, and in autumn 1917, she was appointed gymnastics instructor at the Boys Grammar School in Berkhamsted. Two years later, she was invited to return to St. Leonard's to take on the role of senior drill and games mistress. Nora was reportedly an inspiring and successful teacher, and she remained in post until her retirement in 1951. Olive Maud Andrews entered Bedford Physical Training College in 1916 and her report graded her lacrosse and cricket as excellent and swimming as good, as was her teaching, though her academic work was not very strong. On leaving Bedford, she was appointed as assistant games and drill mistress at St Leonard's, starting work in 1918 on a salary of £180 a year. Olive and Nora became close friends and played international hockey and lacrosse together, and both were involved in the Women's Cricket Association. 
Until Olive arrived at St Leonard's, 17 girls wishing to pursue a career teaching games and gymnastics had gone to train at Dartford by 1918. But Olive was considered a star by the pupils and subsequent aspirants followed her to Bedford. Jane has identified a large number of informal photographs of Olive in the albums and house books donated to the school museum, confirming that she had a considerable following among the girls. Although she was reported as being a rather shy and secretive person, the girls admired her prowess on the games field. One pupil from the late 1930s recalled that she was a very good teacher and unusually for that era was very keen on bird watching. She was very thin and masculine. In cricket circles, she was known as Bill. Olive became the senior games mistress in 1929 at a salary of £350 a year when Nora was appointed as a house mistress. Thank you very much, Jane, for all of that information. It was pointed out in 1929 that the great drawback of this profession was that retirement must come rather early in life, as younger women were always preferred, and in any case, the work was too hard for any but the young and strong. However, on retiring, a successful physical training mistress could usually earn a living as a remedial gymnast or take up an organisational role. And we see organisational roles being appointed throughout the 1920s. In 1927, the Education Committee of the Neath and Port Talbot boroughs appointed Miss M. Seri Hughes as organiser of physical training. She was trained at Anstey before being appointed gymnastic and games mistress at Edgehill College near uh, Bidford, Bidford, and afterwards senior gymnastic and games mistress at Arley Castle near Budley. Apparently, she was an all-round sportswoman and a very capable equestrienne. In 1928, Miss Marjorie Ann Smith then gymnastics and games mistress at the Bradford Bellevue Girls' Secondary School, was appointed as organising instructress of physical training in Somerset at a starting salary of £170 per annum, rising by annual increments of £10 per annum to a maximum of £210 per annum. Where I live in Cheshire at the moment, the demand for qualified physical education teachers in schools and colleges provided employment opportunities and careers for several women. 22 women, all of whom were single, gave a variety of descriptions in the 1921 census of their occupation and details of their employers that indicate that they were engaged in teaching physical education. Seven, four of whom were working in schools and three of whom were self-employed, described themselves as a gymnastic mistress. Two were self-employed gymnastics and dancing mistresses, while five had games mistress in their title and eight included physical as part of their self-description. 
highlighted in blue there are perhaps the two most influential women in this field in Cheshire at the time. 40-year-old Catherine Ann Hart, organiser of physical training for the Cheshire Education Committee, and 35-year-old Mary Altham, a lecturer in physical training at the Teacher Training College in Crewe. At a meeting of the Cheshire Education Committee in September 1912, Miss Catherine Hart of Paisley, born in 1881, was appointed physical drill instructor and inspector in girls and mixed elementary schools in the county at a salary of £120 per annum. As a comparison, Mr F. Mills of Guildford received a similar appointment for the boys' schools at a salary of £150. Catherine's role was to run classes for teachers across the county to give them a definite idea of what was required by the physical training regulations and to introduce uniformity. A typical demonstration of physical exercises in December 1913 involved about 50 girls under her direction. They went through a series of Swedish exercises and dances, which were calculated to develop a harmonious development of the body in a smart and pleasing manner. Catherine demonstrated how faults that were common in the district might be corrected, and the discussion afterwards highlighted how since breathing exercises had been taken more regularly each morning, colds had become less prevalent among the children. Miss Hart strongly advocated the wearing of gymnasium costumes by girls during their ordinary schoolwork, as well as for physical exercise, pointing out that they were not only hygienic, but that the looser the clothes were, the more chance the child had of getting a well-developed body. When, after rendering valuable service, Catherine retired in 1923, she received several tokens of appreciation and goodwill from the local authority teachers of Cheshire. Catherine was replaced by Mary Alton, who had trained at Dartford College. 1921, Mary was living in Chester along with Olive Earlam, a 37-year-old county inspector of schools. Mary was 35 years old, single, and working as a lecturer in physical training at Cheshire County Training College in Crewe. She'd been at Crewe since 1911, and she was responsible for tuition in physical education, as well as training and helping organise the various student sports teams. Mary is pictured here with the 1921 college tennis team. Mary was granted a leave of absence in 1918 to take up a commission with the Queen Mary uh, Army Auxiliary Corps, where, according to her staff records, she was in charge of the physical training of all the women in the army camps. Cheshire Education Committee obviously valued female physical education, at least if the uh, calibre of their appointments at the training college for anything to go by. And Mary's replacement during this secondment was the equally qualified Miss Edith Buck, who had trained at Bedford. 
Mary returned to crew in 1920 and continued as physical training instructress until 1923, when her appointment as successor to Catherine Hart was confirmed. Keen to keep the momentum of excellence that Mary had established at the college, another Dartford graduate, Miss Gwendolyn Warner, was recruited, and when she moved on in 1926, the students were instructed by Miss Gladys Ridge, who had trained at Anstey. Shortly after the end of World War II, Mary retired after having served over 20 years as Inspector of Physical Education for Cheshire Schools. So, that's enough of me talking, I think, really. It's time to wind up. Uh, just to say, really, that male concerns about women playing competitive sport never went away in the 1920s. At the end of the 1920s, one commentator observed that the problem associated with athletics for women was the tendency of these women towards greater masculinity and argued that sports and athletics should be planned to develop feminine qualities, including gracefulness in speech, dress and character. According to H.S. Scrivener, the lawn tennis referee, women tennis enthusiasts had one danger to guard against, the tendency for good looks to be spoiled. Speaking in 1929, he said that the constant strain of looking either at the ball or your opponent the whole time undoubtedly developed a fixed and hard expression, which was only too apparent in the case of many women players. There were cases of first-class players who, starting as really pretty girls, had become so strained in their expressions that they were now positively plain-looking. Nevertheless, women participated in greater numbers and with greater enthusiasm in the interwar period, and much of the expansion of women's sport in these years can be credited to the passion and commitment of games mistresses, who were not only key role models in the school setting, but also worked tirelessly in the committee room to create and sustain national and club organisations. Every life course reflects the context in which it is lived, but for an increasing number of women from the middle classes who were prepared to challenge existing masculine norms, the games mistress became a positive career choice. Now, writing in 1907, Annette Meakin, commenting on the stereotype of the old maid, had observed that remove the stigma of idleness and emptiness from a woman's life, and no reproach will be attached to her spinsterhood. The games mistresses of the first half of the 20th century were not the old maids of previous generations, women who were often victims of circumstance. Instead, they were part of an independent, focused and supportive community whose members had made deliberate career and lifestyle choices. The critical juncture in these careers was the decision to marry or not. The marriage bar was only ended for teachers by the 1944 Education Act, the same year that local authority bans were relaxed for women, doctors and nurses. It's no surprise then 
that for many games mistresses, the advantages of mar marriage were not enough to outweigh its constraints. Most of these women have left little trace in the historical record, but that should not dissuade the historian from making the effort to uncover their life courses using a range of different biographical methods, including prosopography and collective biography, which has been usefully employed previously in considerations of female phys physical education teachers in Copenhagen and the influential women involved with ANSTI Physical Training College. Just as important is the individual biographical method and biographies need to be constructed from a broad spectrum of key primary sources, such as newspapers and periodical archives, photographs, trade directories, census material, contemporary maps, travel documents, local and family histories. To highlight the continuities and changes in the roles they adopted and to collate key characteristics on their origins, economic class, family connections, social networks, and daily practice. This will not be an easy task, and the subsequent narratives may lack evidence in parts. But as John Bale pointed out, these biographies do not need to be stuffed with truth to enable us to interrogate some of the stereotypes that have been assigned to the figure of the interwar games mistress. Just finally, if you're interested in this field and have not done so yet, then visit the Osterberg collection. I'm sure everybody in the room has already done that, uh, but just in case. And as I said at the start, I am writing a book on the history of women's coaching in Britain for publication next year. And I would be delighted to hear from anyone who can point me to relevant sources or has stories to tell. The aim is to cover all individual and team sports, so don't be shy. I retire from MMU at the end of next month. So my email address from now on is djday75 at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Really, really interesting paper. Um, I did not was not aware of the retirement news, so congratulations on that, if I may say so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, so uh, now's the time uh, where we can open up the floor to any questions um, as I said at the start feel free to type them into the chat um, or do uh, raise your hand um, and um, I can come to you directly um, if you'd prefer to ask your question directly just looking out for any hands now um, I might just just start Dave um, I think it was Nora Strathern who you mentioned um, was teaching in a boys' school um, when you were talking about her biography. Um, is there is there any indication, or is this maybe um, not known yet, about uh, the the um, how how common that was, um, or whether yeah, and and whether that was whether that might have been a particularly controversial aspect of the games mistress in in terms of it being okay for them to teach teach girl teaching girl schools but not boys schools jane's got her hand up and, yes. and i, well, I can explain that i some, think some there was a difficulty at 
Dartford College where she was a lecturer. Madame Osterberg had um, died and there was a bit of uh, unsettlement, shall we say. And I think it was a, a war work for them, really. The men had gone off to war and therefore the games mistresses were filling in the gaps in boys' schools. Um, that's how that came about. Okay, that's, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my understanding as well. It's, it's the fact that, you know, um, there were gaps and the gaps were filled by the by the women at that particular point in time. There is there is uh, I've I've seen some newspaper references uh, recently to in this period where where men are getting very irate about the fact that that women could teach, for example, football, and and that you know they might be taking boys at the age of 12, 13 or whatever, and, and teaching them the game. Um, and they were appalled by the by the thought that that might be that might be happening. Um, so, I, I guess it depends where you are and what time you you're actually operating in, as to whether it's acceptable or not. That's really interesting. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh, um, Brian, you've got your hand up. Do you want to? Come off mute and ask Dave your question. Hello, thank you for the uh, for the lecture. I was wondering about um, the turnover. You said that um, a lot of the games mistresses were single, and then if they decided to get married, then they they left their positions. But do you have any idea of the turnover? Were there a lot of people going into this sort of uh, profession and then getting married and leaving and a lot more coming in? Was there a high turnover or was there a lot of people going into this profession and then staying in it because they, you know, they enjoyed it or whatever reason? Yeah, I think there was there were a hardcore of individuals, of women, who stuck with it, who made it a career, and um you know resisted the temptation if they ever had the temptation uh, uh, to get married i think what's interesting is i've had a quick look at the 1939 register and what i've been trying to do from 1911 to 1921 through to 1939 is to see if i can track uh individuals who clearly made it a career and didn't get married in in that particular period of time and it's it's difficult to find people so i suspect my feeling is that a number of them did get married uh towards the end of their 20s in most cases uh just as dorothy lasted uh, i don't think she was untypical in that she would have got married um quite late on in her 20s we know that that the average age for marriage was between was was beyond 25 so you had the opportunity to have a career and then if if you wanted to get married then you got married afterwards but mm. but i think the fact that i can't find people necessarily over this over a series of different censuses suggests to me that people moved on but we do know as well that there's a hardcore of women who were uh, national organizers of organizations and rafe would know this as, as well as anybody 
in in the games tradition through women's cricket association and so on who were there for a lifetime basically yeah um there are there are four hands up now um so i'll i'll try and take all of those questions um janice i think you were first that i spotted do you want to come in now thank you um that was absolutely fascinating thank you very much indeed um I'm really interested in the women who went out to the empire um, because I know from my research, which is to do with um, white women in colonial Malaya and Singapore, that these women played a huge role in emancipating Chinese girls and women through sport. And I just wondered whether you came across any examples of any of the women, some of them joined um, uh, mission schools and so forth, whether you came across any examples of any of the women who went overseas. Yeah, I'm, I've been provided with a whole list of them by Jane, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so if, if, if you want any information, on, uh, particularly on the Dartford graduates who went out around the empire, uh, and Jane made the point as well that the um, a, a number of them went to America right. uh, to develop hockey, field hockey and lacrosse in America. But there were quite a lot of them in, um, and Jane will correct me if I'm wrong, but in South Africa, mm -hmm. working in the schools in South Africa uh, and made careers out there. And also went out, of course, to Australia and New Zealand as well. Yep. Um, but I think if, if you want information on, you know, the, the women who went out around the empire, change your change your, your starting point, really. Excellent. So Thank you very Jane. much. Okay, thank you. Dane, it might be useful for you to just pop your email in the chat if you're able to do that, in case anyone does want to contact you directly. Um, thank you. Um, is it is it Kofo? I think you were next. Sorry if I've mispronounced that. Yeah, okay, that, that's fine. Um, well, um, hello. Um, I just want to say that uh, I found it really very, very interesting. Um, and in particular, the attitudes... Um, from the men about you know what would happen to women if they started playing sport I, I i just you know it's so interesting and but there was something that i missed which i don't know whether you could help with there was one particular man i i think i think it was a man called scrivener i didn't get his full name where he was sort of making some really outlandish <laughs> remarks about women so i would really like to get his full name <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, his name began was with an H. Scrivener? Was it Scrivener? Scrivener. Yeah. yeah, it's H.S. Scrivener, S-C-R-I-V-E-N-E-R. He was a lawn tennis referee in the late 1920s. Wow. I think if, if you, you just put a search in, it's his first okay. name is Harry, apparently. Har Harry, Harry Scrivener. Harry Stanley Scrivener. Okay, Han Harry Stanley Scrivener. Okay, thank you very much. Because, you know, I mean, some of the, you know, remarks were, I mean, I think there were others as well. I mean, they were they were very, very interesting to, to hear. But, but very typical. You know, we're, yes. we're not talking here about exceptional individuals. We're talking about uh, a whole culture that viewed mm. women's sport in this particular way. And this 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 concern about masculinity and mm. 
uh, and women becoming masculine um just it, it continued until after the second world war it wasn't yeah. you know it didn't suddenly yeah. end yeah. uh with, it, with yeah. the second world war yeah there must have been a, a lot of fear you know seeing women playing all these games and doing things that you know only men were doing yeah very interesting thank well, you I very think, much thank you yeah, yeah I, I i think just to expand on that a wee bit, Patricia Batinsky in a rec in 2016, um, in the book that she did with is with David Kirk, um, which was a revisiting of Sheila Fletcher's 1984 book, um, made the point that there was always an association, even in the 1950s and 60s. I, she, I don't think she gave those dates, but I, I think that's it continued after the Second World War. This association between athleticism, women, lesbianism, masculinity. There was, there was this whole relationship that, that athletic women um, had to have something different about them. They couldn't be normal women. And and I think that's just a legacy of people like Scrivener uh, and Bobby Riggs and everybody else that went into, you know, the, the post-Second World War period. And also there's even some of it about today, you know, because there's a lot of controversy about, you know, women um, sort of entering the football arena and... Uh, all kinds of comments. Yeah, um, I mean, look at the debate yeah. over women's boxing, you know, and yeah. its introduction into the Olympics and and that kind mm. of thing. It's it's. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Okay, um, Sydney, I think you were next. You want to ask your question? Yeah, hi. Um, so kind of conveniently, I was going to bring up uh, the sort of specter of lesbianism around all of this, just all of these fears of these unmarried women and unmarrying women and doing these very physical athletic pursuits. Uh, I just wonder if you could speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, um, uh, as I said to Rafe before we started, this was inevitably going to come up at some stage um, in the discussion of the game's mistress. Um, but the, the problem is, as the problem always is, is that it can only be speculation, really. It's, it's you know, well, we cannot, while there may be some evidence uh, in some instances, and there's a, uh, a lot of hearsay maybe, we know that um, some surviving evidence was destroyed by families subsequently because they didn't want that particular information getting out into the public domain. You'd have to say that when you look at households, even in 1939, um, you can see households, I was looking at one the other day where there was a kindergarten, a retired kindergarten teacher of 62 living with a retired games mistress of 58. Uh, in the household was another kindergarten teacher of 45 and so on. Um, 
and it's possible for us to speculate about that but i think it's unreasonable for us to do so without evidence i've got to say the fact that when women move schools often across the country and around the country their housemates often moved with them suggests that the relationship was often very close but Claire Langhammer has pointed out that uh, if you look at the mass observation surveys during the interwar period, the idea of companionship became more important during that period of time, even in heterosexual relationships, let alone in female-only relationships. And I think if you're a female with a particular interest, and you've got somebody who's a very close companion, um, then it's inevitable that you're going to share a house and share a life and and whatever. So, what can I say? It's you know it's always going to be speculation. Um, and at the end of the day, I've got to say, does it matter really? Um, you know what matters is that these women made a, a, an enormous contribution to the development of female sport and female physical activity. Um, uh, and their relationships were their relationships and not our relationships really to talk about, I don't think. Thank you. I would love to be able to talk more about that, but I have to run to another meeting now. But thank you so much. This was a great paper. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that. Um, and Jill, you've got your hand up. Thank you so much. Um, very interesting. Thank you. Um, something that I you might have said, but I missed. What was government opinion? Was it positive to encourage um, female sport for the good of the nation's health? Because in the 1418 war, the male recruits were in very poor condition. And was there a positive action to get girls and women to have better health by having games mistresses? Thank you. Okay. I think really, um, if, if you think about it, it wasn't until the National Fitness Council in the late 1930s that really um, there were any major central initiatives to be able to provide uh, support for women's sport at, at a national level. Um, I suspect that a lot of people in government were, if not as extreme as, as Harry Stanley Scrivener, uh, were actually coming out of Oxford, Cambridge and, you know, that kind of elite um, cadre of individuals and that, that kind of culture didn't really worry too much about women's sport and women's physical activity uh, to any degree. Having said that, the eugenics movement at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, was very concerned about women's reproductive health and the ability to reproduce the nation and get them out around the empire as well. 
Um, so I, I think there were there were philosophical drives uh, to try and improve women's health in order to get that kind of uh, outcome at the end of the day. But it was very much driven by the idea of, you know, we need healthy children and in order to have healthy children, we need healthy women. And I don't think necessarily it was, was the outcome of any national initiatives from the government. Somebody might be able to correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, Jane's put a comment in the chat. Um, Jane, I don't know if you wanted to just quickly come yes, in on that I'm one. I'm going to say that Madame Osterberg's aim really was health and the gymnastics, Swedish gymnastics and games was the means to achieve that. Um, but that was her own idea. It was nothing to do with the government. Why? Good. Okay. Um, we've gone, we've gone a, um a few minutes after um over over our time. Um, but that's great because you know there's some been some good questions asked. Um, I don't know if anyone's got any any final questions or comments. Okay. Um, well, let's um let's uh, well, I'll just um I'll just flag up the the next seminar in the series before we before we thank. Dave again. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, our next paper is going to be um in two weeks' time, Monday the eleventh of March, um at six p.m. again. Um, that's going to be Michael Connolly from the University of Stirling talking about the foundations of uh, Celtic Football Club. Um, that's what that one's going to be hybrid. It'll be online. Um, but you can also come along um in person to the Institute of Historical Research in London if you'd like to. Um, so do click on our uh our website um, or the ihr website our seminar and um, register for that one if you're interested um but otherwise thank you very much everyone for coming and thank you very much dave for a very uh, thought-provoking paper oh dave do you want to come in yeah I, I, I just want to say that um this presentation is leading into a paper which will be open access um and that i think will touch more more on some of the issues particularly around sexuality and so on. So if anybody wants that, uh, just contact me on my email and give me a shout. Great. Thanks, Dave. I'm sure that'll be a really good paper. And uh -huh. yeah, thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. Thank See you, you soon. Okay. Bye now. Thank you very much. Everybody.